What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast, where we sit down with top athletes, researchers, scientists, and more to learn what the best in the world are doing to perform at their peak on and off the field and what you can do to unlock your own best performance. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. We've got a great guest this week, Gabby Thomas. Gabby's one of the best runners on the planet, recently just brought home a silver and bronze medal at the Tokyo Olympics. And what's also amazing about Gabby, she was one of our early WHOOP users and testers when she was actually a student at Harvard. That's right. She graduated from Harvard where she studied neurobiology and global health. So that's not a joke. And is currently studying for her master's degree in epidemiology at the University of Texas at Austin. She discusses what she's learned about the importance of consistency, the role WHOOP plays in her training and recovery. She had some great insights into optimizing for recovery, her experience at the Olympics, dealing with the health scare before the Olympic trials and how that powered her performance to make the Olympic team, the role visualization plays in her success, and why she's passionate about public health. A reminder, you can get on Whoop if you use the code WILL, you'll get 15% off. That's just W-I-L-L. And we have an all new 4.0 available to reserve now. All right, without further ado, here is Gabby Thomas. Okay, Gabby, welcome to the Whoop podcast. Ooh, thank you. Thanks for having me on here. So you've had a, uh, an amazing career at quite a young age. You're 24 years old. You just got back from Tokyo. Olympic yeah. medalist. You must be feeling pretty good about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back. We'll get to all the recent success. I mean, I, I also love all the, the titles that you won at Harvard. Let's go back to just, you know, you're a young girl. What inspired you to start running? Honestly, I, you know, I, I started with sports. You know, my mom was super passionate about having my twin brother and I just do sports growing up. And I, I started with soccer and I was always the fastest one on the field. Um, and honestly, a lot of us track athletes kind of start out with soccer and you kind of realize you have this gift for running. Um, and that at some point in middle school, my mom kind of forced me to join the track team because um, I initially wanted to do softball, but you know, she didn't really give me the option. So I ended up joining the team um, and I fell in love with it after that just hanging out with the other athletes and having a good time. Um, I was naturally gifted at it. And, you know, when I started like developing and creating these goals for myself, I just started to love the sport more and more. And at what point did you realize that you were really good at it? Probably my first race in seventh grade. <laughs> I just, did you beat everyone by an embarrassing amount? Was it? <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a pretty good amount. Um, I mean, granted I wasn't in, um, you know, I wasn't running in like Florida and Georgia, like all these other pros were running in, um, you know, I was running in Massachusetts and, um, you know, at a, a prep school division. So it wasn't, you know, the most competitive but I was, I was running really fast. So yeah, I knew pretty quickly. And in uh, high school, how did you decide that you wanted to go to Harvard? Um, that happened pretty quickly. I was choosing between a few schools. I, I hadn't really thought about running collegiately, actually, until my um, counselor had recommended it to me. And then, you know, these coaches started reaching out to me. And what differentiated Harvard from the other schools was the culture around the team. So I wanted somewhere where I could excel like academically and athletically. And when I, when I did my official visit to Harvard and just kind of, you know, stayed with the girls and met the coach, they just had this really awesome culture of wanting to be great. 
and just trying to get results and like putting their best foot forward. And that's kind of a hard balance to get with, you know, all the schools. It's kind of like they're either focused primarily on sports or primarily on academics. And Harvard just had a perfect like balance of both with other things that I could do too. And I, I mean, I think I was right. I mean, Harvard set me up for a great foundation uh, for my career afterwards. And it, it all kind of happened organically. You know, I didn't expect to be running in high school. didn't expect to be running in college. didn't expect to be running pro. But I think every environment that I was in kind of set me up for the next. In your freshman year or sophomore year, did it become obvious to you that you were going to go pro? At sophomore year, it wasn't even a thought. Sophomore year, I at the end of sophomore year, I was ready to quit track. I, I just kind of ended my season very early um, and didn't do a postseason um, and just went abroad. Um, I didn't even know that going pro and track was really a thing until I did it. Um, I didn't realize that it was actually something that I could make a living off of. Um, I knew that some people had, you know, they were running post-collegiately because they loved track, but I thought, you know, you had to be like a Usain Bolt to even begin to start making money and actually be able to do it. So when I realized that that was actually a possibility, that wasn't until right before senior year. Talk a little bit about how you get better at running. I mean, this probably sounds like a dumb question, but <laughs> no, it's you not. Know, I've, I hear like, I hear all these different stories about athletes later in their careers finding their peak in running obviously you're doing events 100 meter 200 meter even at harvard you were winning the indoor 60 meter those are much faster events so obviously strength plays a big role and your body's development plays a big role yeah i I can't tell you how to get faster at like anything longer than a 400 because i just would never train for that. But when it comes to the shorter distances, I mean, at Harvard, I think what got me better at it was focusing on the fundamentals. We were very specific about everything down from, you know, the, the angles, your shin angles and foot angles and how they're striking the ground to your posture, your posture being a huge part of it. The way you're hitting. You have very good posture, by the way. I like to pay attention to posture. (laughs) I notice you have great posture at the Olympics. (laughs) Thank you. That, that took years of practice um, and being yelled at and kicked off the track if I did not have good posture. So that, you know, it's just such a big thing. Those small, those small angles and positions of your body when it comes to sprinting, just make the tiniest bit of a difference. But then those tiny, you know, thousands of a second will add up with each step, with each step that you take when you're sprinting. And then it turns into a hundredth of a second. And that's the difference between a gold medal and a silver medal. And then the 10th is a difference between making a final and not making a final. So it's that focus on the really, really small things that gets you better at sprinting. What do you feel like around what age, let's take the hundred meters. So how fast you run the hundred meters? Like when I started? Yeah. Well, just today, how fast do you run it? Oh, how fast could I run it? Uh, I ran 10.9 in Jacksonville. Okay. So 10.9, at what, at what point and at what age did you kind of make the biggest jump, uh, you know, towards that number? Like how long were you going from 11.1 to 10.9 versus, you know, like you were able to shave a whole second or something, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, so from high school to college, hugest jump, right? That's pretty standard. Everyone gets, gets, you just get stronger. Your body's developed more. Exactly. I think the biggest jump that I, that I've made was this year, 2020, 2021 season, you know, it was awesome. Well, yeah. You know, it was kind of my first year post-college because I graduated in 2019 and the 2020 was taken. So we didn't really get to see what my post-collegiate training was going to look like and how, you know, what the output was going to be. Um, But I think it was kind of, it was consistently better. So I was consistently running faster 
then that's when you see the big drops in time. So that probably happened in May, April, May, 2021, when I started to really see um, the results. Talk about peaking at the right time. That's what it's all about as an Olympian. Yeah. I mean, it's tough, especially as a a U.S. athlete, because there's so many of us who are so good in track and field. Um, So you want to peak at trials. And then you also either, you know, you want to hold that peak for the Olympics or you want to like drift and do a second peak. So it's like, what are you going to do? But you got to peak for trials. Um, That's just like you have to bring your A game because making the Olympic team is is the first thing you have to do. And the first and foremost thing that you have to worry about. Now, given what a short period of time we're talking about we're talking about 10 11 seconds here (laughs) describe you know if you were to run your very best race versus run your very worst race not let's let's not talk about injury or something like that like how big of a gap is that is that half a second or are we talking hundreds (laughs) of seconds you would hope not i mean there are definitely people who run half a second. Yeah. Like a bad day for them will be, you know, like an 11, four, maybe. And then their best will be a 10, nine type thing that definitely happens, but you want to set it up for where like, you know, your bad day is just not going to be that. And that's kind of the mentality that I went to trials is kind of like, okay, I might not race my best, but I want my bad day to be good enough to make the team. So, I mean, in a hundred meter, you really want to see a consistency where like, you're not, you're not varying by more than 0.3 seconds in a race. Now, is that something that you also found in your career? There was a moment in time where you're like, you just narrowed what that window could be. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's where I'm at now. And I think that's part of like the professionalism of the sport. You know, when you're in college, it's kind of like you race, you don't know what's going to happen. It's really okay. Now that we're professionals, you, you want to have that consistency. You want to go to a meet and, you know, people know what to expect from you. You know what to expect from yourself. Um, If you surprise yourself in a good way, then that's great. That's awesome. But that consistency is really, really important. Now, that's so interesting. So at Harvard, you also took a really interesting course load. What exactly did you study at Harvard? I did. So I studied neurobiology, and then I minored in global health and health policy, and then got a citation in French. So kind of your typical athlete. <laughs> well, I mean, the cool thing about the Harvard team is like, there were other girls who were doing neuro. I think there was a whole, like, there was a, a good bit of us. So like, I had people that like give me advice and and encourage me to do it. So I didn't feel like I was, you know, biting off more than I could chew. I played squash at Harvard and um, I was on the team at the same time as Ali Farag, who, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and Ali's now number one in the world and, uh, and the, the best Jeez. squash player in the world. But it was crazy. Cause he was, uh, he was like an electrical engineering major. <laughs> and, and so, you know, he had these, he had this like insane workload and it was impressive, but I, I think that's something people underestimate about, uh, Harvard athletes is, is, um, many athletes take on a very real workload and it sounds like you did that. Right. I mean, you have this huge workload and you're also doing a bunch of other things, right? Like at Harvard, you're not even just doing work in sports. Like you're doing clubs and you're like going to events and you're doing all these fun other stuff that Harvard has to offer. So it's like, so multifaceted and then to like be able to focus and and be fully committed to a sport it's crazy <laughs> it just takes so much well energy. you know that that chaos that you just described is is what inspired me to start whoop like mm-hmm. i was an athlete who used to overtrain and i felt like i didn't know what i was doing to my body you know all, yeah. all 24 hours of the day and it turned yeah. out you know just having a great practice wasn't enough to be uh, peaking as an athlete, you know, you had to think about sleep and recovery and all these things. So that that's really where the origin of, of whoop came from. 
It's actually, it's so interesting and it, it honestly shocks me. I think that I appreciate it so much because I am an athlete, but the amount, like the, it's the lack of attention that so many people pay to their actual well-being and recovery and energy that amazes me on a daily basis, even athletes and non-athletes, people are constantly overextending themselves. And I just totally. see it firsthand all the time. And it's like, if only I wish you could just know, or I wish you would measure like how recovered you are, or how your body's feeling or how you're even how you're like mentally feeling because people are just constantly running around and doing so much, especially today. And like this day and age with all the technology and how everything's so quick and instant, I'm just amazed and wowed by it for me as a professional athlete. And even in college, I needed to have like less chaos. I needed to be focused on the recovery piece and the relaxing. Otherwise I just, I don't think I would be able to perform not just on the track, but in school or just even in social settings. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, how long have you been on whoop now? Well, sheesh, uh, since 2015. So was that like almost. <laughs> so so you're, you're almost in like the beta, you know, the beta group of people <laughs> we were testing stuff with, right? I was in the beta group. Yeah. <laughs> we've come a long way, Gabby. Oh man, I've come a long way too. Yeah, but we've come a long way. I remember when I first got the whoop and that that's, I'm really, really grateful. That's, that's something that my coach was really passionate about. And, you know, he wanted to be involved in whoop and, and introduce us to that because that's where I really developed my foundation for, you know, focusing on recovery and then, you know, taking care of myself because I'm just not sure that I would have developed that kind of consciousness without my coach and without that whoop. I remember he honestly used to force us to wear it to practice because he really, he thought it was that important. He was like, you need to have this on every day. I need to be able to see what's going on so I can tailor your training accordingly. Um, and we were like rolling our eyes. We're like, okay, sure. We'll put it on. But it just became, it, came, it became ingrained in me, right? To like, yeah, totally. That's how I started. That's how I started my career, you know, like wearing this whoop and paying attention to that kind of stuff. I, it was like embodied into my training, you know, and I, it's like, I don't know any other way now. And I don't know how people can go about their lives or even their athletic lives and not be paying attention to this type of stuff. It's so weird. Well, I, obviously I completely agree with you, but it's obviously very cool to see the impact that the products had on, on your career and obviously the amazing success that you've had. What, what are some things that you've observed in your whoop data that you've like found are, are, are helpful for your performance? Like what are some yeah. things, for example, that you're looking at in the whoop journal? Yeah. So I've started doing this like just a lot more, like actually using the journal thing um, as a professional athlete. The biggest one for me or the two biggest ones for me that were shocking was one, just like the time that I'm eating. That's just something that I wasn't willing to accept in college or even like care to look at. And I think it was kind of like, I didn't want to know. And time now before I, bed. Yeah. How, like yeah. how right before, like if you're eating right before bed or even just a couple hours before bed, it just has a shocking impact on my recovery when I wake up, you know, with all the other controls accounted for. Um, and same with alcohol. Alcohol was the craziest <laughs> dip in recovery that you just don't expect. It'll just take you straight to the red zone, which, you know, you hate to wake up and see red. <laughs> right. Totally. Um, yeah. And I'm just like, wow, did everything else the same, even get, you know, an adequate amount of sleep, you know, and just still to see that it's like, wow, that actually makes a huge difference. So I had to cut like my evening wine out of my routine. I just used to love to do that. But when I got to, you know, the serious training, I was like, well, I just can't afford to do this <laughs> and then wake up and expect to train. 
at the same like caliber as I'd like to. What else did I look at? Sharing a bed, like sleeping with my dog, something that also kind of affected, I was shocked to see that it affected it. Um, poorly? Also, yeah, poorly. Dogs can be feisty. Yeah, not something I'm willing to give up. I love sleeping with my pug, but you know. Maybe it's just, just not the night. No. I, let me ask you a question because there were some funny viral stories about this. Were the beds at the Olympics very uncomfortable? Oh my gosh. Yes. Like shockingly so. And it, the problem wasn't even the cardboard. Like the cardboard is okay. Just don't jump on your bed. You'll be fine. Right. But it's a, the, was a mattress made out of cardboard too. The pillows too. It was so shocking. And what has me a little bit bitter was the fact that, you know, all the throwers got the nice mattresses. <laughs> what? Why? And the rest of us just didn't, um, I guess because their body types are like just naturally, like they have to be heavier to do their event. And so I imagine that they just needed more support. I, I really don't know. I, but doesn't I just, this piss you off? It kind of pissed me <laughs> off. I mean, like here you guys are, you're training four years to peak on one, two, three days. <laughs> and all of a sudden we're just going to put you on cardboard. Like what? That's who, shocking. Who is approving that as a strategy? Who's like, this is the right time for cardboard mattresses. <laughs> this is the right time for cardboard. <laughs> like, yeah, of all of all places and times in the world. Yeah, this is it. Yeah, no, I was shocked too. I'm like, really? The Olympics? Now, the, the New York Post reported, uh, see if it says a grain of salt, New York Post reported that it was to prevent uh, Olympians from having sex. <laughs> is that true or that's not true? I, I highly doubt that was true. I, okay. <laughs> there's no way that was true. Okay. So, <laughs> so to me, it's like, that's the most bizarre, job. most bizarre thing ever. Did you notice that you were sleeping worse in Tokyo? Definitely did. Um, and in fact, to the point where I actually just couldn't even look at my loop because it does at an event like that. Mentally a little bit. Yeah. And I could have been completely fine. Like my recovery could have been fine, but I didn't want to know. That's just not a time to want to know. Um, anything if if you're if you know yourself and you know you might get in your head about it i think for olympians especially in your sport almost just assuming you're you're a green recovery on game days better yeah it's, it's interesting it. you know if you're playing if you're playing day in day out or you're playing a tournament every weekend i've talked to a lot of athletes who will try to use that information almost to guide how they play or how they think about warming up or this or that I think, for, no, I think um, when I go to every other regular track meet, oh, I, I'm wearing my whoop. I want to know. I want to know exactly how that competition affected me. Yeah. I want to know if anything that I did before competition or after competition makes a difference. So 100%. And then you learn from that. The only two competitions where I just will not wear it will be, you know, trials and the Olympic games. But 100%, if, if it's any other meet, it's beneficial to have that information. Now at the trials, do you get to sleep on a, a real mattress or do they have you on the Oh floor yeah, yeah. Like trials at the hotels. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. yeah so there awesome. you go. That's uh, that that probably helped. Oh yeah. And then it was also with COVID. Um, you know, the US team, we we could only get out there five days before our event started. Um, and we didn't do a, a camp, you know, over in Tokyo or that time zone like the other countries did. So we also were kind of battling that, that type of recovery. And that jet lag is real. And for most people it kicks in, you know, three to five days after getting to the destination, like jet lag gets really intense during that, those, uh, that time frame. I mean, it was just brutal. And then put that on top of the beds. The beds thing pisses me off. So I'm curious when you, when you race like a, a 200 meters, uh 200 meter dash, what is like your max heart rate get to? Will you almost top ticket or is it almost not long enough to, to get there? 
Oh, um, yeah, no, it actually does not get to what my top usually is like in training. And I can't remember the exact number that it was. it's been a while since I've been in training, to be honest. <laughs> you're, probably, you're probably around but, uh, uh, like a 200 max heart rate. It's in the, we did a, a YouTube video on it where we actually looked at it live time on one of our harder interval workouts. Um, my training partner and I more like, it's actually a really cool video, but we, we actually, we actually use our group literally like in the middle of training. Um, Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah. We use it. Like we actually pull out the app and we're like, Oh, this is our heart rate right now. Um, we have two more minutes of rest. I wonder if we're going to be fully recovered for this. And I like to see like, as we go through the the season, how recovered I get in that time. Cause we know we do the same workout. Well, heart heart rate recovery is what you're describing. And so for folks listening right now, you essentially try to get your, your heart rate up and then you know, if you've got two minutes to rest, you want to see how low your heart rate will actually drop. If yeah. you're less fit or you're really tired, the heart rate recovery will be slower. Like your heart rate actually won't drop as quickly. Whereas if you're very fit or you're peaking physically, uh, you can have really dramatic heart rate drops. And I bet, I bet your heart rate recovery is awesome. Yeah, it was, it was looking pretty awesome in the video. It was actually pretty awesome too. So it was, I was like, oh yes, <laughs> they caught us on a good day. Yeah. But you know, during race day, nah, it doesn't, it doesn't get quite as high as it does during those hard training days. So let's talk about race day. How much mental work are you doing in terms of visualizing the whole experience and what kind of a practice is that like for you? A lot, a lot of mental work. I mean, so much of the race is mental. Um, race day, I wake up, do my visualizations, do my meditation. Also something that I picked up from Harvard track and field. Um, it was incorporated into our warm up on cool. any hard day and especially in competition days. And then it's, it's, it's still part of my competition warm up, right? It's picturing and visualizing the race. At big competitions, obviously, I envision myself winning. You know, I envision it probably a hundred times before I actually run the race. And, and do you and, see yourself in the first person or the third person? Oh, I see myself in the third person. That's a really funny question. Yeah, so, you, <laughs> so you're like that. you're like seeing yourself holding. It yeah, I see myself. Yeah, yeah. that's actually it's right. interesting. Some athletes, it's through their <laughs> own eyes, and some athletes, it's in the third person. I never even thought about that. Yeah, it's definitely third person. I like to see myself actually doing it, and then also it just calms you down, right? It just everything, just the chemi- your brain chemistry and the hormones, just taking a minute to do the breathing work, to do the visualizations. It's really helpful. I think it'd be interesting to see. Um, the effects of meditation on like my recovery with the whoop too. I have not journaled that one. Um, but during times when I'm like really on my meditation, you know, my, my 10, 20 minutes a day versus when I'm just kind of skipping out on it. Don't skip be- out on it, Gabby. <laughs> it's key. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. I've been off of it during this off season. I, I can't even look at my, my thing right now. I don't even want to know, but. <laughs> well, you deserve a little rest right now, but. Right. When you, so when you would meditate or when you do meditate, what does that look like? First thing in the morning or before you exercise? Yeah, it's, it's first thing in the morning usually, and it's completely focusing on breathing. Like, um, when I'm just doing general, uh, meditation and not, you know, worried about competition, literally just focusing on my breathing and it's okay to like have other thoughts pop in here and there, but just trying to, to pinpoint it and focus on it. Yeah. Parasympathetic. Yeah. Just think in and out. Um, when it comes to competition, it's really more just envisioning the race. And then I might do the breathing work afterwards. And the warm up beforehand, is that, you know, a big stretch? Will you actually run the race a couple times? Like, 
Yeah, you, I'm sorry. I mean, not obviously the race, but we run the distance a couple times or not. Nope. Nope. Warm up will be, it'll start off just general dynamic movement. Um, then I move into the stretching meditation. And then after that I do my sprints. So if I'm warming up for a 200, I might run like a 120. I might do two one twenties before I go. I'm not going to do the whole race. Um, might freak me out a little bit. <laughs> I might feel a little tired, be like, Oh God. Um, and then do some block starts. What's the philosophy on a great block start? Oh, block start. Oh gosh. That's something that I really worked on this year. Um, and I've gotten a lot better at, especially my reaction time. Um, I think the best thing I could do for a block start is just be so anticipate that sound and be ready for the, for the cue. So what I do is I, I, I hear it. I wait for the sound and then I just punch, like punch my arm in the air. And that's like my key to get like the reaction time that I want. Everyone's different on cues, but you just need to anticipate it, but not so much so that you, you know, you fall start because that's the worst thing you can do in a race, right? It's fall start. Um, and it happens so often. And this season it happened so often at the Olympics and at it was crazy. Yeah. It was so unfortunate, you know, to just work so hard to get there and fall start. But yeah, it's like anticipating that, you know, and obviously if you don't have the best reaction time, it's not the end all be all, but in a race like the 60 or the hundred, uh, you know, like I said, it matters, that, yeah. in a metal. Yeah. So it's, it's having that, that reflex and you, you can practice that. You have to, you know, you have to practice it. That's, you know, it's all you can do is practice that anticipation and that reflex. So obviously the visualization super important. And then in terms of running the race, I mean, do you find that it's almost just like, like that, or do you find that you're maybe so focused on it that that 10 or 11 seconds actually feels like a long period of time. You tell me. Oh, in the hundred. Yeah, no, in the hundred, it feels like a long time. Um, yeah, interesting. yeah, it's especially because I'm, I'm less comfortable with that right now and I'm still actually working on it. Um, so, you know, making the four by te- four by one team was huge for me. Yeah. Uh, Cause I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go down and do the hundred or if I wanted to go up and do the 400 at trials because, you know, my sweet spot's at 200. And so right. that I made that decision maybe two days before I flew into Eugene to run because the race is, it's just so many pieces that I feel like I haven't mastered yet. And there's, there's so much that goes into a 100 that people don't realize like starting, you know, you have to focus on the block start, right. And focus on that anticipation, the level of focus you need is so I think, you know, underappreciated, like at an elite level. Now you need to be so focused for that. Very present, right. I would think very present there. Yeah. And then after that is driving, right. You need to focus on that drive phase. And then I think what is the most difficult part is transitioning out of that drive phase. And that's where a lot of people mess up and you don't notice it when you're just watching it and you don't like, you know, have the eye for track, but it's like transitioning out of that drive phase can really make or break your race. It can like set you up for the end of your race. In um, terms of how you're actually like standing up almost mm-hmm. as you, you run like through. Like how you're, yeah, exactly. How you're just coming out of it. You just need to have that, you know, the back end. Uh, I don't even know what you would call it. So the swimming analogy is like they dive in and then they come up and start, you know, swimming. It's almost like that, right? It's like that moment you come up. Yeah. It's that moment you come up, but it has to be gradual to set you up for the rest of the race until you come, you come out of it and you transition out of it and then you want to hit, but you want to make, and then you want to maintain because you can't be accelerating the entire time. And that's going to be your top end speed. And then you want to maintain that top end speed as much as you can and try not to decelerate as much as you can. And that's going to be, you know, the probably the wins. The commentators talk about, uh, oh, so-and-so has a great K 
kick or, you know, someone comes out of the block fast, but then they're kind of flat or someone's like always kind of catching at the end. Do you think much about your competitors and how they might be, you know, doing that stuff around you or is it just, yeah, you know, is it you, you versus time? That's, that's an interesting question. Everyone's super different. Um, for me, you know, I'm, I'm aware of it. So I, I like to be somewhat aware that way. There's no panicking when I see what someone else is doing. Um, because my specific style is, yeah, I kick at the end. Like, I'm not going to be the first one to 40 meters and then try to hold on. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to try to build as much as I can. And then my transition is going to be that kick at the end of the race. Um, so I'll be aware. I'll know, okay. If someone's really far ahead of me at 50 meters, that's really okay. Because they're probably going to decelerate a lot faster than I'm going to decelerate. So, you know, be aware of your competition because it is a race. It is a competition. You want to you know, uh, know what's going on around you, but definitely focusing on just my own race and how I execute and what, you know, my, my strategy and what my plan is. It's important in the 100 and especially in the 200 for me. And then as I work on the 400 too, that 400 is a whole nother thing. There are so many different strategies and race plans you can do. So who are, who are some athletes could be in track and field or beyond that, that you look up to, or you admire, or you've learned something from? I mean, definitely Allison Felix. She is just outstanding. She's had such a long career and just a very, very consistent career. And she's not, you know, the type of athlete to just pop off a fast time here and there, right? She remains consistent. Um, you know, when she's on the line, she's going to compete, whether she's getting a gold medal, a silver or a bronze, right? So she's just done that for so long. And it's really admirable to think, okay, you can just stay in the game. You can do it the right way. You can work really hard and just have such an, such an amazing and outstanding admirable career by doing that. So I, I just, I think that's really, really cool that she's been able to pull that off. Um, and it just, it takes so much discipline, right. To just not show up somewhere and just like pop off this super fast time and then, you know, lose that focus, right. She's had that focus for so many years and so many competitions, um, which is just, it's amazing. And like, you know, you mentioned peaking. And so with track and field, it's just really important that you have the discipline to run fast when it matters and where it matters. You could do whatever you want, right? Every we're all talented, we're all super fast. So you could just show up somewhere and run, you know, 21.8, which is a really, really fast 200 time for women. And then, you know, go bomb the trials, you know, run like a 23 flat, right? You can do that if you don't have the discipline and focus at training or you're not listening to your coach or you, you don't feel like training for months at a time really hard. And that's what happens when you don't do that. But you see Allison, who's just so focused and so mature as an athlete. I think it's phenomenal. So that's kind of what I aspire to do. And she also does it across, you know, the one, two and four, which is yeah, even, amazing, right? yeah, you know, it's really cool to have that, to have that range. So she's a phenomenal athlete. Um, you know, they're just Quinera Hayes. Also, she's been around for a while. She, she's such a strong 400 meter runner can never count her out when you see her on the line. I just, I love athletes like that. You know, you can, you see them show up, you don't count them out. You know, they've been putting in the work, whether or not, you know, they're making headlines every, you know, every week. It's like, no, you a very solid athlete. That's what I really, I really admire that. I love that. So let's, let's transition. Cause we're talking about consistency right now. And one big theme for consistency is obviously sleep. Yeah. And you've shared, you've shared some of your whoop data with me. So I'm looking at it <laughs> oh, and you've got a, a remarkably high sleep efficiency. So sleep efficiency is obviously for folks listening, it's the amount of time you spend in bed actually sleeping, right? So you're in a, a, a restorative period or you're at least getting light sleep, but you're not awake. You're not having dirt disturbances. 
we generally say being over 85% is good. Although I'm looking at your data and you've got between 90 and 95% sleep efficiency, <laughs> which, well, you know, which is pretty damn good, Gabby. So you're like, a happy sleeper. Things. My Harvard track and field coach, he used to make me write essays on sleep and the importance of sleep. So when I tell you it's ingrained in me, like to the point where if I don't get good sleep, coaching, I'm stressed. Yeah, it's great coaching. I mean, it's a great foundation that I was, you know, that was laid for me just to, you know, transition to pro. But yeah, so I think what's really interesting is I just, I am one of those athletes where I need sleep. I'm also just a human being, like a person who needs it. It's crazy because I actually, you know, I have this um, whoop group with a bunch of former Harvard athletes. It's really fun. And I just see how people, can get by, you know, like five hours and it's five great. Hours, They're yeah. great. Like that's just what they need. They, they just can't even have any more else. They might even feel drowsy. Um, whereas for me, it's like, no, I need eight hours or it's not going to be, I'm not going to be able to perform. And it's so interesting to see how people are so different that way. So I'm very serious about that sleep efficiency. What are some things that you've observed that improve your sleep or what is your bedtime routine? Um, well, the consistency is really important. I used to feel like, um, it didn't matter when I got my sleep, as long as I was getting the hours. Um, and I realized that, no, I needed to be consistent. So typically like my, I'll, I'll like do, this isn't great, but like midnight to nine, right. is kind of like my sleep window. And if I keep it consistent like that, you know, I actually sleep really well through the night. Additionally, you know, I don't have a TV in my room. That's very intentional. I don't like to watch TV or be on screens before I go to bed. Right. Uh, I, yeah. That's pretty, everyone knows it's that. A good one. Really yeah. Not, yeah. That's not good for you, but to actually stick with it and not have the TV in your room, it's a really good habit to get into the habit of reading before bed, an actual book, you know, not being on your phone is a really good habit to get into because it makes a big difference. Um, like I mentioned before, eating before bed, you want to stay away from that. What else? Also, you know, just how active you are throughout the day. That's also, you know, pretty, that makes sense, right? You know, the more active you are, the the better you're probably going to sleep, the more you're going to need it. I find that when I haven't had a very strenuous day, um, like I didn't, you know, maybe it was a rest day. It's just harder for me to get to sleep. Yeah. Um, for me to sleep through the night. But I think it's just a matter of, you know, being consistent, you know, having just consistent days, having that routine. Have you ever worn blue light blocking glasses? I actually have not. I just ordered a pair. <laughs> you know, that's going to take you to another level. <laughs> uh, they are amazing. I started wearing them uh, two years ago. You look a little ridiculous in them. I mean, they're, they're like these orange tint glasses, but they have dramatically improved the restorative sleep that I get. Really? Yeah. So I get like three to four hours of REM and slow wave a night. And I'm also often on my phone before bed because I'm responding to emails and stuff. And, um, but but these glasses, they're like a get out of jail free card. So the fact that you're, (laughs) you're already, the fact that you're already behaving so well, you know, reading and this and that, I think, I think the glasses are going to be great for you. Well, have you compared it with like the glasses versus no blue light at all? Is it comparable? Well, it's hard to have no blue light because even just your natural environment is producing blue light. I haven't done a perfect AB test on myself, which would be no blue light, black and glasses versus no screen usage. Yeah. But I, I put these glasses on and they already start to make me sleepy. 
It's amazing. So um, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to send you. Really a, cool. I'm going to send you a pair of the ones I've got too. I got to try that. Yeah, I think you're going to like them. Now, what about <laughs> muscle recovery? So, you know, do you do anything with Normatec boots or Hyper Ice? Do you like cold baths? Do you do Epsom? A little baths? bit, a little bit. I don't do a lot of that. Um, another thing that I picked up from Harvard Track and Field. Um, I don't do a lot of that stuff when I'm in training. I like to teach my body to kind of figure it out on its own. And then when it comes to championship season, when I'm at trials or Olympics, I'll do an ice bath or an Epsom salt bath. But I pretty much steer clear from that when I'm in the bulk of my training. Well, that's an interesting philosophy. So you're, you're almost suggesting that doing these things is teaching your body not to do it on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, is that your own opinion or, do, or did you talk? I, I don't have any that? research to back it up. I'd be interested to know if my coach who put me onto this philosophy has done the research, which I, I wouldn't be surprised if he did. He researches everything. He doesn't just tell me to do things. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm sure there's research that supports it. I'm also sure there's research that is against it, but I'm, I'm a strong believer in it. Um, I mean, I will do massage therapy. I'll use a hyper rice, but no, it's not, it's not a big thing. Yeah. No, not really. Not. Yeah. I like to take care of myself, right? I keep, I maintain myself. So I'm not going to put repeated stress on my body and not get any type of therapy, but yeah, ice baths and Epsom salt baths. I just assume that it will make my body a little more dependent on it than I would like to be. If not physically, I know mentally. So just save those for the, the major competitions. Over the course of a day, what are you eating? Um, I am pretty consistent in season. Um, wake up, have like oatmeal. Um, I normally just put some oats, some some oats and oat milk and some fruit in a bowl and eat it for breakfast. We train kind of early afternoon, so I normally don't get a chance to have lunch. Um, and I come back, I might like have some chicken usually and some type of vegetable, sometimes salmon, switch it up. And just kind of have like a big lunch dinner type thing. And then maybe a snack later, but it's very boring and very consistent. <laughs> so nothing, maybe Chipotle every now and then, but this is like in season when I'm, when I'm off season, it's, I eat whatever I want. Is your weight something that you pay a lot of attention to? Like, and how do you think about that? Is it better to, to almost be getting a little lighter leading up to the race or is, you know, maybe you're trying to put on muscle. So you want to actually get a little bit heavier, like yes. talk about that. This is a new thing that I've been focusing on this year. It's, I never worried about it until, um, fall 2020. Um, I mean, you want to have some weight on you in the off season so that you have like something to burn off when you're here. All you're doing is mileage. Sure. Like we're running yeah, so, right. so much volume. Um, but then yeah, leaning up to the actual competition and when you're peaking, you just want to be like lean, lean muscle. It's kind of like, just imagine, you know, running and putting on a weight vest, just anything extra that you have is just inevitably going to slow you down. And like I said, every step matters if you're being slowed down you know, even one hundredth of a second and one step that's going to add up. So I like to, I really do try to be as light as possible um, while maintaining muscle. So we're in the weight room. We're in the weight room like twice a week, put throwing weight, right. Um, to yeah. get that activity and to have that muscle, have that strength. But at the same time, you, you really want to keep it as minimal as possible while, while still being healthy. My rule of thumb is kind of just whatever you're putting into your body, it has to make sense, right? It, it has to fuel you and be, and have nutritional value. Obviously you can cheat sometimes that's on you, you know, that you're going to see that those results, but you know, you know what you're putting into your body. If it's going to help you then do it. If not, then it's not conducive to training. 
So will you go so far as to say, okay, I know I should be this weight on this day. And you kind of are working towards that as you go. I think that's an unhealthy way to look at it, but yeah, I do. I do that. I, I kind of know how, where I want to be. I think, you know, what I know when, what weight I am when I'm peaking, yeah. I know how far I am from that. So yeah, I, I do think about that pretty frequently. I try not to think about it that way, but I, I know I have an idea. Also, you know, doing scans, seeing how much of your body, you know, your body composition breakdown. It's also, that can be really important. Now you've overcome some adversity this year, which I feel like has been underreported in your amazing story. <laughs> you had a bit of a health scare with a benign tumor. Yeah. And then you also had a bout with COVID. Like talk about overcoming <laughs> this. Well, the COVID was in July, 2020. So that was kind of, you know, in the middle of COVID, we didn't really have a season. Okay. Um, there's so many COVID cases in Austin going on. So that, I mean, that was, it was unfortunate. I had a mild case, thankfully. Um, and then I continued to train, um, honestly through it and after it, and then went on to like kind of finish my season. So that was um, okay. Not a big deal. It was okay. It was no big deal. Right. Mild, mild case of COVID just, you know, quarantined. Um, the, the tumor scare was really, it was really terrifying and, and mostly because of the timing of it too. I mean, we, I was about to go to Olympic trials. Um, so I had this like hamstring injury for like a month, it, hardly an injury. It was just kind of like a, something, a pain that I was feeling. Um, I was still running through it. And then they recommended that I get an MRI scan on my back just to see, you know, what was going on. It might be connected. And then they found, you know, a mass, you know, in my liver and I had to get extra, um, imaging just to see what would, what it was about. And at first, you know, I'm thinking just from my experience and, you know, studying health, I just, I know that a lot of times when you do scans, you find these extra things, right. And they normally don't mean anything. A lot of us have abnormalities in our body that you would just never know because you're not a pro athlete getting scanned like once a year. Right. Um, right. it happens. Um, so at first I, I was so unconcerned and I didn't even want to go get the extra imaging. I'm like, it's not worth my time. I'm competing. Um, but the doctors kept telling me that it looked so unusual and that I needed to go get it checked out. And then that's when I started to panic. You know, when your doctor's saying, oh, no, this doesn't look right. You have to go get it checked out. I was starting to freak out and it was frustrating how long the entire process was taking start to finish. Um, Olympic trials were coming up in a couple of weeks. And it got to a point where I was like, I don't even want to, I don't know if I want to know if this is cancer or not before I go compete for my spot on the Olympic team. Um, but ultimately I decided I had to know because not knowing <laughs> was getting to me. Um, and then gosh, it had to be like two weeks before I left for Eugene, where I found out that it was benign and it was such a relief. Cause I just remember wow. thinking, like, I was just thinking if I'm healthy, like I'm just going to do whatever it takes to make the team. And I think it did make a difference on, you know, when I, when I went there, I, I went in like just so, so grateful and ready and just feeling so healthy and like alive knowing that I actually did not have cancer when for had to be three weeks, I thought I had cancer and it, it was so, it just fueled me so much more. It probably was part of why I ran so fast. But yeah, that was, it was, it was terrifying and it just, it was frustrating dealing with the healthcare system during that time. But yeah, we're grateful to be healthy. Well, you strike me as someone who's, uh, who's in general, a grateful person. Is that something you consciously think about? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it was crazy because I actually had a friend visit me in Austin right before I got that imaging and we were having this deep conversation at Zilker and we were talking about what are you most grateful for? And my answer was literally my health. I'm so grateful to be young and healthy and not have any of these, 
it's, we're just so grateful. I can, I'm, I'm mobile. I'm able to do anything that I want to do. Um, it's something that we take for granted when you're young and healthy. And it had to be like three days later when I got the scan <laughs> and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. But yeah, I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, and then of course her answer was, you know, about the people and friends and family. And, you know, we often takes for granted the people that we have around us. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's another thing that I'm grateful for too. The environment that I'm in that allowed me to become an Olympian. So I understand your mom's a college professor. Yeah. 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 In the department of education. That, that does help explain, you know, your academic interests because you're also right now, uh, working on epidemiology, correct? I am. Yes. Yes. That was one of my mom's, uh, demands that I moved somewhere, um, in a city that has a graduate school <laughs> that I could attend while I trained for the Olympics. Um, and UT was a great option. So <laughs> now has she always been tough on you with your academics? Like, Hey, you know, you, you might be running fast, but you got to get good grades. Yeah. Um, I don't know if tough is the word to use for her. Um, she's always been passionate about it. She's never been a stickler for grades. She's always wanted me to just do what I wanted to do, um, and just do it well. Um, she's just always believed that education is the most important thing, um, and access to education. And that's what she's super passionate about, um, in her line of work. So yes, it was ingrained in me, you know, like all these other things ingrained in me at a young age, at a formative age. And it kind of just stuck with me even through now. With your epidemiology background, what, uh, what are your takes on COVID-19? Where's this all headed? Oh God. (laughs) Oh God. Um, you know, it's not looking great right now. Um, I just think everyone, it has to be kind of a cohesive, cohesive unified front. If we want to get out of this thing, um, at, you know, in the foreseeable future, um, if not, we're just going to keep doing the same thing that we're doing now. Um, and that's just the, the issue with public health. It's just making sure that everyone's kind of on the same page. Um, and, and doing things to help one another, which is just not what we're doing. It's kind of the opposite of you know, the American way. Right. So we're just gonna have to ride this one out. <laughs> now, do you think, do you think that this is going to be ongoing for years and years to come? Like some folks are saying, you know, every year yeah. you're going to get, you're going to get a COVID shot. You're going to get a flu shot. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's just what we're going to have to accept. <laughs> absolutely. And is COVID in part what inspired you to go down this study path or? Weirdly, no, weirdly, no. It was just a weird timing coincidence. Um, I had applied for, uh, grad school, uh, fall of 2019. And then, oh, I, funny. yeah, the COVID outbreak happened. I remember I was working in a, in a clinic and we were getting so many weird cases of the flu. It was crazy. I think it was like November, December, 2019. And we were like, geez, the flu's nasty this year. And then of course in January, 2020, it was like, Oh, COVID outbreak. And then we're like, Oh God. It was, it was just a weird coincidence. It was, it was, I mean, it's always going to be relevant, right? Right now, COVID's just, you know, the hugest thing in the news, but it's always something that's going to be important. And you, you've studied global health extensively, obviously with your work at, at Harvard. What, what's inspired you about that path, global health? And what, what are you hoping to, to change? Uh, what inspired me about that was just the the public health aspect of it and the health disparities. It was everything that you know we're kind of overlooking as a as a society that leads to poor health. Um, so the the social determinants of health, right? Like your income, um, your environment, um, and just all of those things that you know we just overlook. Um, and I wanted to do something about that. So it's not even just you know 
how often you can get into a doctor's office. And if your doctor's helping you, it's like, you know, can you get to your doctor's office? What happens after you leave the doctor's office? Are you able to maintain um, whatever recommendations they gave to you? Um, and those are the kind of things that I kind of want to do something about. And I want to be in the field of research as an epidemiologist with that outlook, um, because it's really important that public health has, you know, the diversity um, racially, culturally, um, and that people like me are in that field and um, being at the forefront and making these recommendations and, and being a part of the research um, and being in the field. So that's, sure. what, yeah. So, I mean, that's what I was really passionate about. It's, it's to see these kind of things firsthand, to see it with my family. A lot of my family, you know, they grew up in Mobile, Alabama. That's where my mom grew up. Um, and, you know, some severe poverty type situations and just knowing that nothing is being done to really help them. They're just kind of overlooked and underserved, under-resourced. Um, and so much of that is just public health. It's not, you know, going to the doctor's office and just getting, getting this medication. Um, it's also research into, you know, those medications, right? It's like, how does this medication affect white people versus affecting, you know, brown people or black people? That research isn't being done. <laughs> you know, it's not done. You know, the standard is just like a specific looking person or a specific, specific type of person. All of that <laughs> made me just think I need to get in and do something about it. And I would like to do that with the mastery of it, which is why I wanted to go to graduate school and study epidemiology and healthcare administration. But I also want to look at, you know, how it's being administered and the economics of health and in actually being realistic about how I can make that change in communities. So having that balance. Yeah, no, it's such a, I mean, such an important point you made. And I guess the whoop lens on it is, is as much from an education standpoint, which mm -hmm. is to say that if you can help people understand important physiological metrics and give them ways to have an alerting system, you know, you can put more power in the hands of individuals. And Absolutely. that's obviously one piece of the system and one piece of the puzzle and you can't cut doctors out of it. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I always think too. Yeah. It's like that, that education piece, right. It empowers you and it engages you. So when you just have that, even in itself, it, it makes a big difference. I, I mean, so much of it is just the education piece from my experience and, and, you know, talking to my family and, and friends that I know who aren't getting what they need um, and taking care of themselves. It's an education piece. It seems so simple because it's something that I've always been exposed to, but it's not. Well, Gabby, this has been a real pleasure and uh, I'm thrilled you're on Whoop and have been so for a long time now. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, <laughs> it's a part I, of me. <laughs> I, look forward to, uh, I look forward to meeting you in person next time you're in Boston yeah. and wishing you the best of luck. Thanks, Will. This was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you to Gabby for coming on the Whoop podcast. Reminder, you can use the code WILL, W-I-L-L, to get 15% off a Whoop membership. Check us out on social, at Whoop, at Will Ahmed. Please give us a review or a comment. Make sure to subscribe. That helps more people find the Whoop podcast. And uh, stay healthy, folks. Stay in the green.